Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The End of the Federalist Era. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Washington's Retirement. 1796 was a presidential election year. Washington had served two terms, and he could have run again, but he decided not to run for a third term. And this is huge. He could have easily ran until he died, or even made himself a king. But he didn't. He wanted to ensure the Republic's survival. He gave away power to secure the future, which is something few people willingly do. So Washington, like I said, is very complex. He owned human beings, which is wrong, but he helped create and sustain a Republic. Humans are anything if contradictory creatures. By retiring, Washington established a precedent for presidents to serve no more than two terms. And this precedent was not broken until FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was elected four times due to the twin crises of the Great Depression and the Second World War. In 1951, the 22nd Amendment was ratified, limiting presidents to two terms of office, turning precedent into constitutional law. Before he left office, Washington wrote his famous Farewell Address, which was printed in papers around the country. Among other things, he warned against sectionalism, North vs. South, and East vs. West. Next, he argued against the, quote, baneful effects of the spirit of parties, end quote, as he recognized that political parties were vested in their own interests rather than the interest of the greater good. Lastly, he warned against, quote, permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world, end quote. This arguably set a precedent because the United States remained relatively isolationist until the 20th century and did not maintain a military alliance outside of the First and Second World War until the creation of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, in 1949. Please advance to the next slide entitled, the election of 1796. With Washington out of office, this election was between John Adams, a Federalist, and Thomas Jefferson, a Democratic Republican. Hamilton technically was the Federalist leader, but he had made too many enemies to be a plausible candidate. As a result, Adams got the most electoral votes, so he became president, and Jefferson got the second most votes, so he became vice president. Now, the executive branch contains two men from two different parties. It is not until after the ratification of the Twelfth Amendment in 1804 that electors get to vote separately for the president and vice president. So, this is akin to having Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton as the president and vice president of the United States, and I would have literally paid to see that. One last remark. It will be during Adams' presidency that the two old friends have a falling out and after his term ends, they refuse to speak to one another for 14 years. If you look on the PowerPoint slide, you should see a hyperlink. Make sure you click those throughout the presentation to watch some clips from the John Adams series. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Problems Abroad. Adams arguably never had a chance to succeed the popular Washington. Jay's treaty had improved U.S. relations with Great Britain, 
but the French viewed it as a violation of the Franco-military alliance dating back to the revolution. The French also said that if free ships, free goods did not apply to Great Britain, then it did not apply to France either. In 1798, the French began seizing American ships carrying British goods, including Peel's clothing. In response, Adams sent three American envoys to France. The three expected to meet with the French Foreign Minister Talleyrand, but they only got to see him for 15 minutes. Then, the French sent out three low-level agents who demanded a $250,000 bribe to see Talleyrand and a guaranteed $10 million loan for France. The three American envoys sent dispatches back to the United States and referred to the French agents as X, Y, and Z. Thus, the event became known as the XYZ Affair, and Americans were insulted and outraged. Please advance to the following slide. In response to the XYZ Affair, Congress passed a bill to create a 10,000-man army in a department of the Navy. There was lots of anti-French sentiment and calls for war. John Adams proclaimed that he'd never send another ambassador to France until the French guaranteed that the delegate would be treated as, quote, the representative of a great, free, powerful, and independent nation, end quote. As a result, Adams' popularity soared, and for the next two years, Americans were engaged in a quasi-war with France. There was a shooting war at sea in the Caribbean, and both sides sustained casualties. But war was never officially declared. Though many Americans wanted a declaration of war, Adams did not ask Congress for it. According to the historian David McCulloch, quote, Had Adams done so, the Congress would have surely obliged. Instead, they turned their attention to enemies at home. End quote. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Enemies at Home. So who were these so-called enemies at home? Well, there are about 25,000 French immigrants in the country at this time, as a result of the French Revolution and the Haitian Revolution, and many Americans asked, what would these immigrants do if the United States declared war on France? More importantly, most of these French immigrants were Republicans. So in 1798, Congress, which was controlled by the Federalists, passed the Alien Act. This increased the residency requirement for citizenship from 5 to 14 years, and it authorized the president to expel dangerous foreigners, though Adams never invoked this power, even if Jefferson and the Republicans made a big deal about it. More famously, Congress passed the Sedition Act, which made it illegal to write false, scandalous, and malicious things about the government, the president, or Congress. This is clearly a violation of the First Amendment's guarantee on freedom of speech. The Federalists, by contrast, insisted that this was a war measure. And in reality, the Federalists were trying to silence their Republican opponents, especially Republican newspaper editors who had been constantly slandering the Adams administration. Jefferson was secretly leading much of this criticism, so can you imagine a sitting vice president undermining his president? It's almost unthinkable. So what did John Adams think of these acts? Well, he called them a war measure and signed them into law. History has judged this to be the greatest mistake of his presidency. A number of Republican editors were jailed, and one drunk guy was fined $100 for wishing out loud that a wad of a cannon 
would hit Adams in his rear. But some historians have postulated that this is really an attack by the elite on middle and lower class newspaper editors who were asserting themselves in continuing the process of abandoning deference to their social betters. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Resistance. To deal with these acts that they deemed unconstitutional, Republicans turned to the state legislatures. Two states passed resolutions denouncing the acts, and these were called the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions. Madison wrote Virginia's, and Jefferson wrote Kentucky's, both anonymously, and they argued that the states had a natural right to nullify federal laws they considered unconstitutional. And this is very dangerous. Virginia and Kentucky had hoped other states would fall suit, but none did, and the issue eventually died. But this episode again shows how divided America was, and it put forward the theory of nullification that would come up again in the 1830s in South Carolina, and later be used as a justification for secession in 1861. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Adams Makes Peace. What about U.S. relations with France? Well, the quasi-war had hurt France, and they depended on trade with neutral countries to supply their army. Then, the French government was ousted in a coup d'etat led by General Napoleon Bonaparte, who in the words of one historian, quote, expressed nothing but the friendliest of sentiments toward America, end quote. In October 1800, peace with France was finally secured, and John Adams took pride in securing the peace later saying that on his tombstone, he wanted inscribed that in the year 1800, he prevented a war with France. And given his impressive resume, the desire to remember this particular achievement is telling of how important he thought it was. Ironically, the prospects of a war with France might have helped him and other Federalists get re-elected. For this reason, there were lots of Federalists trying to delay the peace as long as possible. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Prosser's Insurrection. Gabriel Prosser was a skilled blacksmith who was hired out by his owner to the Richmond foundries. He worked alongside European, African, and mixed-race people, and hiring out had increased as the tobacco market was depressed and Virginia's soils exhausted, and this was a way to recoup money for the planters. While working, Prosser learned of the Haitian Revolution and started planning his own insurrection. He may have even had the help of a white French radical co-conspirator to foment the plan. In August of 1800, Prosser planned a rebellion involving 1 to 4,000 slaves near Richmond. From the limited evidence, it appears that he may have told his followers not to attack Methodists and Quakers, both of whom were proponents of emancipation, as well as Frenchmen, who were viewed to be allies. The rebellion was postponed due to bad weather, and two slaves informed their masters about the plot. When word got out, 25 freedom fighters, including Prosser and his two brothers, were caught and executed. The influence of Prosser's rebellion is stark. From 1780 to 1810, numerous slaves were freed in the Upper South due to the example of the American Revolution. As a result, the population of free blacks rose to 30,000 people, or 7.2% of the total black population. Virginia planters, like Jefferson, were nervous about free blacks in the state, but they also wanted to find a way to back off from the institution of slavery. Prosser's rebellion slammed the door shut on such sentiments. Slave manumissions declined, 
and free blacks saw numerous rights they enjoyed stripped from them as they were now objects of suspicion. Reading and writing for slaves was forbidden, and in 1808, the process of hiring out was banned for a time. Thus, instead of taking the path of mercy and humanity to move away from slavery, Virginians instead took the route of oppression and intolerance. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Election of 1800. Like the previous election, this contest was against Adams and Jefferson, and there was lots of mudslinging. Federalists were divided amongst themselves between supporters of Adams, who were moderates, and Hamilton's men, called High Federalists. Adams himself called Hamilton a bastard, and Hamilton referred to Adams' disgusting egotism. There was little, if any, party loyalty and discipline among the Federalists. Remember, political parties are still new. And Jefferson and Adams' mudslinging was also nasty. A Republican called Adams a hideous, hermaphroditical character, while Federalists circulated rumors about Jefferson's slave child with Sally Hemings, which was true. Go ahead and click on the clip on the PowerPoint and you can see an example of this. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Tied in the Electoral College. To make matters worse, those seemingly weird rules for electing the president were still in place. Like today, presidential candidates had vice presidential running mates. But in 1800, the presidential and vice presidential candidates ran in the same election, so it was possible for a vice presidential candidate to be elected president. And this is what happened in 1800. Jefferson beat Adams by eight electoral votes. But Jefferson tied his vice president running mate, Aaron Burr. People expected Burr to step aside, but he didn't. This is because Burr was a demagogue. He would say anything to anyone to get elected, and he had no principles. If there's a tie in electoral college, the election then goes to the House of Representatives, where each state gets to cast one vote. Because of the makeup of this lame duck Congress, it was essentially up to the Federalists to decide between these two Republicans. Jefferson had been the leader of everything the Federalists detested, but Burr had a reputation as a power-hungry schemer. The House voted 35 times, and each time it was a tie. Finally, on the 36th ballot, Jefferson was declared the winner, and what happened here? Well, possibility number one is that Hamilton persuaded some of his colleagues to vote for Jefferson. And shockingly, Hamilton had made it clear that he preferred Jefferson, whom he believed wouldn't do anything to jeopardize his popularity, while Hamilton considered Burr to be unpredictable and an interested schemer. The second possibility is that Jefferson's allies may have been hinting that if elected, Jefferson wouldn't do away with any key Federalist policies. Well, whatever the reason, Jefferson became president and Burr vice president. In 1804, the 12th Amendment was ratified, requiring electors to cast two separate votes, one for president and one for vice president. But Burr never forgot Hamilton's snub. In 1804, while Burr was still vice president, he ran for New York governor, and again Hamilton was instrumental in ensuring his defeat. So Burr challenged him to a duel. Hamilton was an honor-obsessed hothead who had been in 11 duels already, but none had resulted in gunfire. Except this one. In the end, Burr shot and killed Hamilton, the only sitting vice president to ever murder a man while in office. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Revolution of 1800. America's first governing political party, the Federalists, had been defeated in a nasty election, but there was a peaceful transfer of power, and Jefferson called this a revolution, 
because even today, it's hard for one group of people to let go of power when they are democratically thrown out of office. In his inaugural address, Jefferson said, quote, But every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We have called by different names brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. Jefferson's not just being nice. He legitimately believed that Republicans were the only legitimate party, and thus hoped to absorb most of the Federalists into his party. But as we will see, there will be stubborn opposition to him and every president in American history. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.